Let me say a word of prayer and then I will just share some thoughts with you. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness. You are a good God. You are a good God. We thank you. We pray that uh, uh, we will experience your goodness in our lives. And for this morning, we are always grateful that as uh, we can come together to sing, to worship, to uh, use this as a platform to spur one another on, encourage one another, build each other up. There's many distractions in our lives. Uh, once a week we come together. Just look at the cross, look at your word, uh, re-evaluate our lives, rededicate our lives, and be connected to one another. And as a community, we can do work for you. Thank you. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a quote by G.K. Chesterton um, who influenced a lot on C.S. Lewis. He, say a quote as, uh, he says, before you pull down a fence, uh, make sure you know why it was there in the first place. Before you pull down a fence, uh, make, sure why, uh, make sure you know why it was there in the first place. We can go through life pulling down fences without recognizing that why it was there in the first place. There must be a reason, right? And so uh, church is, is increasingly changing. Um, there are all sorts of ways that people are changing church. And therefore, the pastoral team thought it would be good to do a series on what church is like. What is the church supposed to be uh, in the Bible? Uh, and, and the scripture gave us a few images of what church is like or supposed to be. And last week, we talked about church as a God's bride. And today, I want to talk about church being the vineyard of God. And then we talk about church, a holy and royal priesthood, the church as, church as a flock of God, the church as olive tree, as a body of Christ. And then we accumulate at a church camp, uh, emphasizing the church as a family, church as a family. So this morning, I want to touch on uh, being church, what church is like. Uh, for this, I want to give you a little bit of the history. Stay with me. Uh, it can be a little bit heavy going. Uh, I preach from the first service, but comes to me and say, wow, that's heavy, you know. Uh, sometimes we're not used to uh, strong Bible teaching. Um, but I want to show you something. So please stay with me before I come to this text on Jesus said, I'm the true vine. Uh, unless you know a little bit of the context and the bigger picture, when Jesus said, I am the true vine, we go, wow, that's why. That's what it means. In the, in the Old Testament, uh, Israel has always been known as the vineyard or vine. Uh, whenever he mentioned the Old Testament about nation of Israel, when he mentioned vineyard and vine, most likely is pronouncing judgment on Israel. So let me just give you some text and you can see what God has done to the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 says this, My beloved work hard to plant a vineyard. My beloved referring to God. God said himself, my beloved worked hard to plant a vineyard. He found the perfect spot for it on a very fertile hill. And he set to work to clear the ground. He cleared out all the rocks and stones. He tilled the ground and he prepared it for planting. And then he bought the best young vines he could afford and planted them. He built a wall around his vineyard and in the middle, he built a watchtower and in one corner, he dug a vine, wine vat. All through the growing season, he put in long hours tending the vines and protecting them from bad weather and pests and robbers and other dangers. He did all this expecting that his vines would produce a good, sweet grapes. But it was not to be. The big but. But it was not to be. When harvest came, the grapes were sour. The grapes were bitter. And then the story goes like this, further down. And then this is God lamenting for all that he has done. God said, tell me all of you who live in Jerusalem and Judah, what more could I have done for my vineyard 
what more can I do? I have done everything possible to make it grow as a nation of Israel. I chose you. I gave you a land. I gave you law. I gave you prophets. I gave you everything. What more could I have done for my vineyard? Judge between us. Can you think of anything that I should have done that I neglected to do? Just like parents, isn't it? You do everything for your children. You don't go holiday, you save, you give your children the best possible education, send them to private school, do everything. Give them a good start in your Christian faith, bring them to church, to Sunday school, everything you possibly you could done. But nothing happens to them. And like God, you say, what more can I do? I've done everything. Everything. Was it unreasonable of me, God said, to expect a crop of good, sweet grapes from it? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down the wall that protected my vineyard so that animals can come in and trample it. I'm going to leave it alone so that the thorns and thistles will grow up and the vines will be overrun with weeds. I'm going to tell the clouds to keep their rain. Must have missed that. Let me read to you. I'm going to tell the clouds to keep their rain. This vineyard doesn't deserve any water. For all the good is done me. And then towards the ending, uh, God says through the prophet Isaiah, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, who is it? It's the house of Israel. And the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but he saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but he heard a cry. You see, this illustration of Israel as being the Lord's vineyard is very common in the Old Testament. Sometimes there's a slight variation on it. Instead of a whole vineyard, Israel is just a single vine. The mention is Hosea and Jeremiah as well. And then in Psalms 80, once again, God says, I've done everything I possibly could have done to Israel. And I expect Israel as a nation chosen by God to represent God on earth to administer justice, to do good, but they have failed. And because they have failed, I'm going to judge them. And therefore, they were, went into exile for 70 years. Babylon came in, and you know the history, the nation of Israel split and, 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 and all that. Look at Psalms 80. It's a bit more clearer now. You brought a vine out of Egypt. The nation of Israel, remember they were in Egypt bondage, and God let through Moses led them out of Egypt you brought a vine out of Egypt you drove out the nations and you planted it, you gave them a promised land, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land the mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out its branches to the sea and its roots to the river but once again, in verse 12 to 13, the story does not have a happy ending. This is what God says. Why then have you broken down its wall so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. They didn't produce fruit. They fail God. Despite that God gave them a land, the law to guide them, they fail miserably to represent God on earth. And in Jeremiah 2 again, I have planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? So Israel is the vine or the vineyard that the Lord planted and on which he lavished his loving care. But Israel did not produce the sort of fruit the Lord was looking for. He was looking for justice, compassion, faithfulness, but what he got instead was oppression, vi violence, worship of false gods, 
and general disobedience to his command. And therefore, he went to the exile. But there's hope, because in Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies and looked into the future. God is not giving up. One day, something beautiful and good is going to happen, even though Israel has failed to represent God on earth. This is what uh, Isaiah in chapter 27 and visage will see the vision of what will happen. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. And then down to verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. And the vision was fulfilled in, in Jesus. And his statement in John 15, with these images behind, he said, I am the true vine. Israel has failed, but I'm not going to fail God. I'm going to show you what Israel is supposed to be that they didn't do, what I'm going to do to fulfill this. And just before we came to John 15, just a week before, you must understand John 15, sandwich 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is what they call the farewell discourse, the Jesus' final moment before he goes to the cross. And so he washed the disciples' feet and he had a last supper with them and then he led them out to the Garden of Gethsemane. But one week before this event, something else happened. In Matthew 21, he, Jesus gave a parable of the tenant. And he used this figure of speech in his more familiar sense. Matthew records a parable he told of a vineyard owner who planted a vineyard and looked to the servants he employed in it to harvest it for him. But they betrayed his trust and tried to seize it even though he sent his own son to them. And in conclusion of this parable, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, the Jewish people, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord had done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. You rejected me as a Messiah. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will, what? Produce its fruit. It will produce its fruit. And therefore, now Jesus, at the end of John 14, last verse, it says, let us leave. Jesus let these 12, 11 of them out. And so in the moonlight by the temple gate, he stood amid the ruins of the former vine. In fact, he said, Israel has failed, but God's purpose will not fail. You know why? And he looked at the vine, he said, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. Anyone who remains in me will bear fruits. Apart from me, you can't do anything. So I'm the new vine. I'm the, the, the vine is planted afresh. It will grow anew. And so Isaiah's vision is fulfilled way back. Israel, the new Israel, shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole earth with its fruit. As in our missionary endeavor, the gospel then goes out to the entire world. Because Israel as a nation has failed, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and we bear fruits, we go out, the entire universe is filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in John 15, Jesus, I want to expound for you, and I want to go through this passage, I want to read through, and then I want to uh, explain to you a few things, primarily the word remain. Because if you read through John 15, the word remain or abide in me appears many, many, many times. So we need to understand this word. What does Jesus mean by saying, remain in me, abide in me? What does he mean by that? 
And then I'll explain to you in practical terms how does abiding in Christ looks like from verse 9 onwards. So let me just plow through this uh, text with you. Remember Jesus left, washed his disciples' feet, had the last supper, exit now, marched to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was hoping the disciples would pray together with him, but they didn't, they fell asleep. So as he was walking there, passed through this vineyard and he used this life example to give them some instruction. He said, I am the true vine. Israel has failed, but I am the true vine. This vision that Isaiah had is going to be fulfilled. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. The easy thing to dis- to uh, to know which one represents what is very easy because Jesus said, I'm the vine. Yes? And he said, God, my father, is the gardener. The difficult part one is to identify who is the branch. Who is the branch that John is referring to? He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. While we can say that the branch rep- represents Christian, isn't it? Because Jesus said, you cut off every branch in me. That, and, and, but it, it's a bit difficult because the key question then is, can you as a believer, as a Christian, ever lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Can you now as a Christian, maybe 20 years later, or 30 years later, can you lose your salvation? So what does it mean? If you refer the branch as Christian, and you just read like that, it seems to imply that you will lose your salvation. Because he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Or you could say that the branch here has two meanings. It could mean that those who are really, really believers, Jesus will come in and prunes you so that you will grow more fruits. And he will cut off those that bear no fruits are actually non-believers, seemingly call themselves as a Christian, but they have never actually been a Christian at all, just by name in a sense. I'm a Christian. Just right on there. What's your religion? You just write Christianity. But you are actually not nothing in you that, that show any evidence that you are a Christian. That's a very nominal kind of Christian. And in that sense, uh, he cuts off every branch in the sense that, that, that non-believer after all. So you still maintain the fact that you won't lose your salvation. Uh, which John seems to imply, because right throughout John's Gospel, he seems to capture this meaning that no, you cannot lose your salvation because all that God has given to the Son, He will keep it. You cannot lose your salvation. Because if you, can, if you say that you can lose your salvation, you are saying that it all based on you, not on the saving work of Christ on the cross. It's based on you, how you perform. You don't perform well, I lose all. It's based on the works and not on grace in a sense. And so that's a difficult, that's a different uh, uh, of views in that sense. Uh, that's not in the perimeter of this message to dwell on this incident. But all that we can say, which is my belief that you won't be able to lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Uh, more likely, it's referring to uh, people who has never been a believer before. And bearing in mind that he did this, all this in the imagery of Judah just betrayed him. So he's, oh, you know, 11 really, but he, that's one, it's not. So he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So when, when, God, when Jesus said he prunes us, it's so that we'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. See, you start, start the word now, remain or abide. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So remain, 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 abide, abide. Because if you don't remain in me, you don't abide in me, you, you, you cannot do anything. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. See? If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So, in this verse, you can see one of the chief marks of someone who is born again believers, who really, really is a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, then most likely you have never been a believer. Because it says here, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciple. So, fruit bearing is the marks of a disciple. So we are not talking about uh, plenty of fruit. You can have little fruit, much fruit, and plenty of fruits. But nevertheless, a Christian should bear fruit. What is this fruit? We'll come to that later on. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. See how many times this remain, remain, abide, abide appears. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And then the last thing he concluded this part of the sermon before he heads to Garden of Gethsemane. This is my command. Love each other. It is my belief that the fruit that Jesus asked the disciples to bear, specifically in this context, is love one another. Of course, the fruits, other parts of the scripture mention the fruit of the Spirit and, and saving souls as bringing fruits to the Lord. But specifically, I think, this is my conclusion, in John 15, the fruits that Jesus asked us to bear is to love one another. What does it mean to be abide or remain? Uh, there are many, many uh, terminology that has been, we all know the dynamic of language. Sometimes it's very hard to translate words, even in Chinese words. There are a lot of words that you can't find equivalent in English words. And so is the original language in the New Testament. So the word remain or abide, uh, some translation use dwell, continue, endure. So Jesus said, abide with me, remain with me, dwell with me, endure, continue in me. And I did some research on this. Uh, there are other parts of the John Gospel, these words are being used loosely in elsewhere, uh, has this word called stay, stay. For example, John chapter 1. Remember when Andrew found uh, Jesus, they went to Jesus and, 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 and said, Rabbi, and uh, they said, where are you staying? The word staying is the same word of abide. Or remain. Where are you staying? Jesus said, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. And then in John chapter 2, uh, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum 
with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. Again, abide, remain, staying. And then in John chapter 4, Samaritan's woman, the story, so when the Samaritans came to him, they started asking him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. So the word staying, dwell, it is the same root word from remain or abide. And Psalms 90, the idea of having God as our dwelling place is found elsewhere in Old Testament. Psalms 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, dwelling place, dwell, abide, remain, stay. Psalms 91, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty dwells. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Psalm 61, for you have been a shelter for me, same word, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. And Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And so to abide or to remain in Jesus to me, it means to make Jesus your home. To make Jesus your home. He's a home. To abide in Christ as the true vine is to make our home in Him. Think of the word home. Think of the word home. Home is where your heart is. It is where you want to be. After service, you go for lunch, and then you go where? At the end of the day, you go? You go home. You go home. Home is a place where you return. The place to which in some sense some of us are more eager to return home than others. You may go cruise for one month, Baltic cruise, Mediterranean cruise. You live in a mini suite room or, or whatever balcony or whatever room you live in. At the end of the day, you want to return? home. You want to sleep on your bed. You want to lie on your pillow. You want to go to the familiar bathroom or your kitchen or your... Home is where you like. Home is where you feel comfortable. Home is where you can really be yourself. You can... Don't have to put on makeup. You know, your hair can be tattered or you can wear your comfortable clothing. For those who wear denture, you don't have to wear denture at home. You know, you can you can relax and you know that's where you are, your home. Home is where you feel comfortable and can really be yourself. Home is a place of safety, security. Home is where you bring your friends when you wish to have fellowship with them. Home is our base of operations. It is at the center of what we do. Home is where you find your strength for life. It is where you eat, where you sleep. Home is where the people and the things we love the most are found. Of course, the analogy can break down. Not every home is a peaceful home. Not every home, not everybody looks forward to go home where you have uh, trouble at home and all that. But, but in general, uh, home. So when Jesus said, Remain in me, abide in me. Come, let me be your home. Let me be your home. And when you make me your home, you will bear fruits. And this fruit in this context, you begin to learn to love one another. So as a church, we are to abide in Christ, remain in Christ. He is the one from whom we derive spiritual life and strength and the means to become more Christ-like. It is only through Him that we can bear fruit. It is by abiding in Him, make a home in Him, that we also enter into this deepest union and fellowship at home. And thus Jesus tells His disciples to abide in Him when He departs to be with the Father. 
So that's the meaning of abide, remain, making Jesus your home. Your home. But what does in practical terms it spells out from verse 9 on? What does it mean to make Christ your home? What does it mean to abide in Christ, to remain in Jesus? The first thing is, let me give you five things. First one is we remain in His love. Abiding in Christ, remain in Him, making Jesus our home, means we remain in His love. Look at verse 9. It's a very puzzling verse that Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You must understand that when Jesus speaks this word, he is virtually standing in the shadow of the cross because in another few hours' time, he will be on the cross. You go through the night, pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas is going to come with the soldiers, arrested him, and then he will go throughout the night, five trials. The high priest, two high priests, one is the past high priest and then the high priest and then to, to Pontius Pilate to Herod right throughout the night and then after that he will be carrying the cross 136 kilogram the cross weighs 136 kilogram and most likely they have to walk for 4 kilometers via Dolorosa but Jesus probably walked for 3.2 kilometers and he collapsed the last 800 meter was carried by Simon of Cyrene. 136 kilogram for 3.2 kilometers. So when Jesus speaks this word, the uh, cross is looming behind him. And yet he's able to say, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. Usually, we tend to emphasize the Father loves for us and that this does prompted Him to send His Son to the cross. But I believe that we must also recognize that the Father sent the Son to Calvary out of His love for the Son. Remember, after this, you read Philippians, Jesus descended from heaven all the way down to the basement and after He died in Philippians, He go upward again. He go upward again. And so to abide in Jesus, to remain in Jesus, to make Jesus your home, is that He starts to prune you and shape you and mold you. And you must know, Jesus is saying, when you abide in me, you are remaining in my love. You must know that I'm doing this out of love. I'm doing this not out of punishment, but out of love. So stay there, remain in my love. Stay put there. Don't get disillusioned and give up your faith when you go through suffering or pain or, or, or just cannot understand that so many people move away from their faith because their circumstances doesn't square with a loving God. But Jesus is saying, remain in my love because I'm going to prune you, I'm going to shape you, I'm going to mow you. So the first practical terms is that remain in his love no matter what. So abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus means you remain in his love. Knowing that he prunes you, shapes you, molds you is out of his love and not out of trying to judge you. Some of us, we, we tell someone something because we want to shame the person or we want to uh, judge the person and show to them that we are better than you. Uh, but that shouldn't be our attitude. We want to correct somebody. It's always come from the anger of love. Come from the anger of love. Number two, what does it mean to, to make Jesus your home? Abide and remain in Jesus. We keep His commandments. We keep His commandments. Uh, verse 10 says this, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. See, Jesus always say, well, well, Israel has failed, but I, I'm going to pass with flying colors. I'm going to show you how it's done. I, I obey my Father. And because I obey my Father, I'm asking you to do likewise. Jesus often tells us to do something, but He shows us the way. He said, be a servant, he went on to be a servant by washing his disciples' feet first. And then he said, you go and serve because I've set you the example 
and therefore follow me. And he said, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And, and, and the only command that I believe in the New Testament that we ought to keep is uh, the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbors as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. 613 laws that Jewish people need to keep. And Jesus is the master of able to simplify everything and put it under two and say nothing more. Love God, love others, that's it. You fulfill all commandments if you fulfill this particular command. And very interestingly, in John chapter three, uh, 13, Jesus said, a new command I give you, isn't it? I often wonder, what is this new command? Love, love God, love others is an is a Old Testament command. Why is it a new command? Uh, I believe the new command is actually the standard. Here it says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's in Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. The standard is almost like yourself in a sense. But it's a new command I give you. That the standard is becoming my standard. The standard is different now. Therefore, it's a new command. The standard is now the way I love you. The way I love you should be your standard of love. Third things, what does it mean to make Jesus your home, abide, remain in Christ? What does it mean? The third reason is we love one another. We love one another. As I said, I believe, I may be wrong, I believe that specifically in John 15, the fruit that we are asked to bear, I believe is love one another. Because Jesus knows that after he died, when he resurrected, ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, the world will hate you because of me. The world is going to hate you because of me, because you believe in Jesus, because you held on to the values, the world is going to hate you. So all the more, you ought to love one another. All the more. All the more, you know, to love one another. Sometimes parents tell the children like this, isn't it? You know, true? Siblings, you're going to love one another. Some father or mother, before they die, oh, you must make sure you love one another, you stay on together. Because they all know, outsiders, no matter how, they're outsiders. But I like to believe that uh, uh, family move further. A true family is the family of God. That when we believe in, you can actually be closer to people of the faith than your own blood relatives. Because you diametrically redefine what family is all about. But love is very difficult. We all know. I've been a pastor for many years. I sit in committee for many years. I've seen churches uh, fight, quarrel, leave church, don't forgive, all kinds of things I've seen enough. Uh, while we say this, it's very hard. It's so difficult because our sinful nature is like, so Jesus is saying this, you cannot do that unless you remain in me. This fruit cannot produce in you if you are not remaining in me, you're not abiding in me. You can do nothing if you don't abide in me, you don't remain in me. You cannot produce that kind of fruit in you. When we talk about love, we often don't show it. We, all that we do, we just avoid each other. That's all. We just don't see eye to eye and just... Just basic courtesy. But deep in our hearts, sometimes we have resentment against certain people. Someone said that one of the keys to happiness is a bad memory. I think in relationship it is true. Sometimes a little bit demented is good. You know, otherwise you forever remember the person's fault. 20 years ago, you still can dig it up when you quarrel, you know. 20 years ago, please give me a break, man. 20 years ago, you know. You know I've done this thing wrong, but 20 years later, still, still, still digging it up, you know. So, so it's good to be a bit demented in relationship, you know. Forgive. 
Otherwise, resentment, bitterness, you hold in your heart, you cannot let go, and then you carry around yourself this bitterness in you, and whenever you talk about that person, all this anger starts to flow out of it. Uh, the power of God don't seem to be able to penetrate that because you have not abide, you have not remained in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you must remain in me, otherwise you cannot love one another. Otherwise the church will split, will fight, will quarrel because we have all diverse people in the church from young to old. Even the song can cause quarrel. What song you sing can also fight. You know, I prefer the old hymns. I prefer the contemporary song. You know, everything can, can pick a fight over small things. And therefore, Jesus is saying, well, love one another. When you abide in me, when you remain in me, the outworking of this as the disciples bearing this fruit is that the community will be able to show that. I've never ceased to be amazed by Martin Luther King uh, Jr., We all know he's a civil right. He was born a day. I was born a day after he died. So, uh, and this is what he says. He said, Martin Luther King, relentless commitment to practice agape love, rightly earned him the mark of a true prophet. This is what he said. To most violent opponent, we will say, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force, S-O-U-L. Do to us what you will and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail. We will go in those jails and transform them from dungeons of shame to havens of freedom and human dignity. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities after midnight hours and drag us out to some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Somehow go around the country and use your propaganda agents to make it appear that we are not fit culturally, morally, or otherwise for integration, and we will still love you. Threaten our children and bomb our homes, and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. But be assured that we will write you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we will win our freedom. But we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will also appeal to your heart and to your conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Oh yes, love is the way. Love is the only absolute. So the third thing, what it means to remain or abide in Jesus is that we, we are able to love one another in a community. Fourthly, uh, this is my command. No, sorry. Fourthly, we have great joy. We have great joy. One of the things that remain and abide in Jesus is that we have joy. It's not a chore. It's not a chore. Serving God is not a chore. It must be a joy. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And you want to flow along with the thought of this is that Jesus is saying, well, keep my command and my command is love one another. And when you love one another, you will have joy. I want you to make your joy complete because if you don't love one another, you have bitterness, you get angry, and we all know our deepest problems in life are all relational. It's not about lack of money and all that. All relational. Most of our problems in life are relational problems. And therefore, uh, Jesus is saying, you have great joy if you learn to love one another. You abide in me. You keep my commands. Bear these fruits of love. You will have great joy. But your joy will be in full, isn't it? Your hearts would overflow with joy. And joy is not dependent. It's not contingent on your circumstances. If you read through the book of Acts, right throughout the book of Acts, you see the disciples are always joyful despite the fact that they suffer persecution and all kinds of things. They are always joyful in the midst of adversity because joy is not dependent on circumstances. It depends on abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus. Lastly, what does it mean to abide in Jesus or remain in Jesus or make Jesus our home? Is that we are his friends. We are his friends. Look at this uh, 
verses here. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this. See the theme of love keep riding through this John 15. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. The you is below, just in case you don't know where's the you. Uh, um, we become his friend. Jesus speaks of a change. A change is about to take place in his relationship with his disciples. He will no longer deal with them as his slaves, but rather as his intimate friend. You must understand throughout the old Bible, God reveals to us, or rather God's methods of, re, of, of being closest to us progresses as the history unfolds. From just obeying law to ultimately accumulating in Jesus coming to reveal to us till he died on the cross, resurrected, ascended, sent us Holy Spirit. Each step is closer in relating to God. God is coming closer and closer to us and become relational and not just only obey law, which is traditionally most religion in a sense, you know. Be good, keep the law, but it's dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit reside in you when you believe in Jesus. And Jesus said, you are my friend. And this home, you make me your home. We can sit down and have friendship. Remember Revelation 3.20? I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will come in and what? Beat you up? What? To have supper with you. To eat with you. To have friendship, to have relationship with you. And that is the way. That is the way of changing heart. Changing heart is a way to... Relationship is the way to change heart. Changing of... Law is only changing your external behavior. But change heart must go through the avenue of relationship. And Christianity is relationship with God. It's a little bit like uh, the master and slave thing. Uh, it's a little bit like army. I served in the army for two years in Singapore. It's compulsory to serve army two years. And for the first three months, you are known as recruit. And in the three months, you are literally no one. You are like a dirt, a piece of meat for them to beat you around, for them to humiliate you and all that, at least in my time. Now, of course, you can't do a lot of things. Uh, but at, uh, in my time, you, 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 you're, you're being humiliated. The three months, sergeant is like God, you know. You cannot argue with him. He say yes, you say yes. He say jump, you better jump. Uh, he say die, you better don't die. I don't know. No one would do that. But the point is, his command is you don't disobey. But after three months, when you are passed out, you are no longer a recruit. He's like a friend. Because he won't treat you like a recruit anymore. He won't. You're on equal term in some sense, although the rank is still there in the army. That's not the best analogy, but the point is that you move on to another level because you're no longer a slave. You are now friends. Jesus said, you are my friends. You are my friends. And so, so here is the sermon I will give to you. In conclusion, just as a way of summary, Israel has failed. Jesus is a true vine. And Jesus is creating a new community when he came to this world. And the church, we believe in Jesus. And we are the new community that God is going to use to bless the world. And as such, in order for us to be a good community, we need to abide and remain in Jesus. We need to make Jesus our home. And when we do that, we will grow fruits in our life. As a disciple, we must produce fruit. And this specific fruit, as I said, I may be wrong, but specifically I think in John 15, is the fruit to love one another. So that as a community, you can show that love for one another. And Jesus said in John 13, By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So technically speaking, we don't need to do evangelism. Of course, there's great commission, but I'm just saying in terms of the power to draw people is that the community itself is a dynamic force to draw people because 
of love one another. The people, newcomer come, they feel that we love one another. We extend a welcoming hand to them and embrace them and not look at them, you know, start sizing them or judging them from, from the, you know, head to toe, you know, in the sense, oh, which suburb you do, you know, what job do you do? You know, all this sort of small talk sometimes is a way to size people up, to put them in a society kind of status but it's not going to be drawing people like that. So that is the story. That is what the church is. That as a community, we love one another and God is constantly molding us, shaping us as we learn to abide in Him, remain in Him, make Him our dwelling place and as we be a good community for the world that we live in. Let me close with this. We just sang a song uh, which uh, Jai chose. Uh, it's a song that we sing often during funerals, isn't it? Abide with me. You know, even the words are read for abide with me. Um, let me just read to you in, in closing third verse. Uh, uh, Kid, if you can flash up third verse, for, or maybe it's fourth because we sing extra verse. I fear no foe. It says this. Uh, I fear no foe. You hear that? Abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Death, so what? Because we progress through eternal life, God abide with me and then last verse say, hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes shine through the gloom and point me to the skies heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee in life in death O Lord abide with me God will abide with me God will always abide with us but we need to remain in him we need to abide in him we need to make him our home and when we do that, we will produce fruit. And even death come to us, there's no fear because God abides in us right into the future. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, Lord abide with us. So may you make Jesus your home. May you remain in Him. May you abide in Him. And when you do that, the fruit of loving one another will be there. And as a church, we will be a community of people they will be able to draw people through our Christ-likeness. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the true vine. Israel had failed. But you came to us and said, I will show you what Israel is supposed to be. What it's like to live under the authority of God and blossom and obey in obedience I'm going to show you what it's like. And you, likewise, you, the new Israel, the church, you remain in me. You abide in me. And when you abide in me, you will bear fruit, the fruit of love in one another. And by it shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you do that. Father, forgive us when we fail. The church has failed many times. But despite of our failure, you work true failures. You use brokenness and make something beautiful out of it. You are expert. You specialize in turning ugly things into something beautiful. You say you make ashes to be something beautiful. Thank you, Lord. May you bless each one of us. May we abide in you. May we remain in you. May we dwell in you. May, you make, may we make you our home. You call us friend. You call us friend, Lord. The God of the universe. The creator of heaven and earth. Call us friend. Help us to know that you are loving God. We can come to you. We can talk. We can dare to be ourselves in a home just as we are, come to you. And in the process of authentic genuineness, 
you're beginning to shape us and mold us and bear this fruit of able to love one another. And as a community, we will shine for you. Thank you, Lord. As we sing and close this song, Lord, this is our prayer. This is our prayer for our church. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Would you stand as we close uh, with this song? Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all to us. Precious cornerstone, Sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your Lord's trust. Let the glory. Of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe your oath to If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. 
And apart from me, you can do nothing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus. We bless you. Help us as we depart from this place uh, to make you our home, to remain in you, to abide in you, and to be real to you and come to you. Thank you that you promise us you will always be with us. You never leave us. You always abide in us. Through life, through death, you journey with us. What a comforting thought. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional and unfailing love of God, and empowering fellowship, presence of the Holy Spirit, be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.